have a dream that all men are created meeting people who are just a little bit different. And they're the ones that I like searching out for the podcast here at Your Story. People who have a little bit of tension in their life between contradictory parts of their story, maybe. Or people who have chosen to walk a particular individual path in their life because something is very important to them. In our society, this is generally what you could probably think of as the artists. The ones who are going to prepare something different to the mainstream. Hello everyone, welcome back to Your Story. I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 61. How are you out there? You having a good time? Love to hear from you, love to uh, get some emails from you. Not many of you chat with me and let me know what's happening in your world and I'm always keen to know what's happening in your world and what you think of the show and what you think of the individual people I speak to. And you know that you can share this information around, I hope. You can download any of these episodes and burn them onto a CD and share them with other people. I have a Creative Commons license with all of the content that I produce on the internet that basically says, just give me attribution, just say that you got it from me and uh, you're not making any money out of it and just share it. These aren't my stories, these are other people's stories, so share them around and let other people know what amazing stories some people have in their lives. Most of the time I'm very busy these days. I'm very busy over on my other podcast and site over at Create Your Life Story. I'm putting in a huge amount of work over there, attempting to build something special so that other people can get out and about and do what I'm doing here at Your Story and share other people's life stories, particularly people who are close, people who are in their life, uh, family members mainly I'm aiming towards. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be like we're doing here on Your Story. It can be just people that you meet. And for that reason, I decided to search out somebody in my local community who's a little bit special and talk to him about his life because it's relevant to what I'm doing over on Create Your Life Story as well. If you come to the site, you can get all sorts of extra information. Remember, the music is from IOTA PromoNet at IOTA Alliance. And I've also got a SoundCloud button on the site as well so that you can click on it and actually record some audio and send it to me. It's in the right-hand navigation bar towards the bottom. Why don't you do that? Why don't you get on your computer, click on the button, sign up very quickly and send me some audio. I'd love to hear what you're up to and what experiences you've been having in regards to these sort of things or what you think of some of the individual people that I've had on the show over the last few years. Great thing about my community here in West End is it's a little bit eclectic. It's a little bit different. We have quite a few different personality types. Every city has this and West End is that sort of community in my city. But next month I'm going away and I'm going to be hopefully tapping into another group of people and I'll begin Sydney for an entire month. The entire month of May I'm going to be in Sydney and I'm so excited about it. I'm going down there for family reasons and I'll be able to spend some time catching up with some people. There's a couple of people from the older episodes of the podcast which I'm hoping to find and maybe do a bit of a catch up with them about how life may have changed in the last few years. I'd also like to catch up with a few people that I don't normally get access to here in Brisbane. And you may have noticed that 
that's the way I like to do it. I'm not a big fan of the whole Skype conversation thing. I did one just recently with Adam, as you know, a couple episodes back. And I'd much rather be in physical contact with people because it's so much more engaging to look across the table and look into their eyes and engage with them personally. Some podcasters don't like that because it's a little bit intimidating, they find. They like having the screen between them and the person they're talking to. But they refer to it more as an interview, whereas I've never been a big fan of the whole term interview. It's not an interview, it's a conversation, and that's the way I like to approach it. So next month I'm going to be in May, and I'm looking forward to digging up some really interesting people, and, gee, there's a couple in particular I hope I can convince them to come on the show. It will be wonderful if I can, but I'm not even going to tell you who they are because... They may not be interested. One of them has told me specifically he doesn't want to be on the show. But I, uh, I'm going to see if I can change his mind this time around. We'll see. We'll see. Now, before we get into the show, I just want to make mention of a couple of little things. There's all sorts of things over on the site. There's IOTA Promonet and there's the SoundCloud button, like I said. And there's also all the contact links. I'd love to hear from you. But there's also a donation button. Your story has been a passion of mine for several years. And I have put a donation button on the site so that if you feel inclined to maybe make a donation to me to say thanks for all of this content that I've been producing, you can. It's something that I don't chase. It's something I don't promote heavily. But there is a button on the sidebar which you can click on and make a donation if you'd like. It's entirely up to you. But towards the end of last year, somebody did make a donation, and it's very rare that anybody does. And I just thought it was worth mentioning and saying, thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate your donation that you made last year. He... um, He's written a little comment to me, uh, which basically said, sorry to hear that the donation didn't work out last time. And he's made a suggestion of how I could actually operate with my donation model. He then goes on to say, as a software programmer who intends to publish a few open source projects soon, I would like to see the concept of donations work for myself. This donation honestly is for thanking you that you made it possible for me to listen to some extraordinary Australian life stories. I hope it is not below your expectations. Finger crossed for more participants. Michael, thank you very much. It is not below expectations because I have no expectations. I appreciate any donations. I appreciate any comments. And I appreciate any thanks that may come my way. I do this because I think these stories are incredibly important and incredibly valuable. And this is my little way of contributing to society. And yes, it does cost me. It costs me a, uh, an amount that you would be staggered to know but it's something i want to do and i want to do because i feel that it's very important for me to do and that's one reason why i'm doing create your life story to enable other people out there to be able to do the same thing within their communities i can't get around the world as much as i would love to and uh, maybe if i had a little bit more money i'll be able to get overseas and do some more traveling and i'm working towards that so For anybody who does make donations, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And if you feel inclined to make a donation, there is a donation button on the bottom sidebar. What you could also do to help me is check out what I'm doing at Create Your Life Story. And if you think what I'm doing there is relevant to anybody in your life, or if you feel inclined to do it yourself, sign up for the ebook and the emails that I send out from time to time, and you can be part of that community. But that's a very different story to what we're doing here at Your Story, and it may not suit you. But for everybody out there, I just love to know that you're out there. I just love seeing the download figures and seeing that there are people around the world listening to some of these people who I sit down and talk to. Thank you very much, each and every one of you. So Your Story, 
and create your life story for that matter too, is all about stories. It's all about sharing stories and it's all about connecting with people and doing interviews, even though I really dislike the word interviews. Having conversations, directed conversations maybe with people and getting into what they're about, their motivations, their inspirations, their reasons for doing things and as we've seen with so many people that we've spoken to over the years on your story there are many amazing stories out there and there are people out there who do a variation on what I do and they themselves have a bit of an interesting story so I thought it was worth sitting down with somebody and talking to them about their story about the way they live their life as a professional storyteller an art form in its own right, that requires a certain level of skill, but also somebody who interacts with his community and does interviews of oral history about other people's life stories and compiles them in ways to be able to share them with the greater community also in a different style to what we're doing here at Your Story. So I thought it was worth finding someone and I found the very best person in my community. So I thought it was worth talking to Daryl and hearing his story. Introduce yourself, please. Hi, my name's Daryl Bellingham. And I'm a storyteller. Yeah, Daryl Bellingham's known as a bit of a storyteller, a bit of a, a lad around West End here in Brisbane where I live. He's uh, very well known as one of the people in my community. And I was referred to you, Daryl, because one of my friends is also a storyteller. And he said, if I want to speak to anybody about storytelling, you're the man in town. So thanks for coming on the show. That's my pleasure. What is a storyteller? A professional storyteller is an artist. Yeah. A little bit different to telling your daughter some stories in bed or something like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a professional storyteller is just someone who's worked out how to make a living through telling stories. Mm, I, I could tell by the uh, flashy car you drove up in, mate. Yeah, <laughs> lots of money in storytelling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we all tell stories. Humans tell stories, have been doing it forever. Yeah. And it's something that's ingrained in us and we pass on myths, legends, lessons, all sorts of things. Anecdotes. Yeah. Yarns. Yeah. To get us back into Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Australian Dreamtime stories are all about sharing knowledge and passing it down through the eons. Yeah. But there's a slightly different attitude with presenting stories, actual the skill, the craft of storytelling. I, I suppose we were we were just talking earlier about video software. It's like, you know, you can learn to use a piece of software by doing it. And it's the same with storytelling. So I ran a storytelling workshop last night for basically kindergarten teachers because, hey, they have to do a lot of storytelling with kids. And the reason why I get asked to do that is that people are a little bit nervous you know, people think, oh, I can't do that. And so someone like me gets some work by saying, hey, yes, you can do that. Mm. We do it all the time. How did, how did you get into it? Did you have a grandfather or an uncle who just always told you stories and you became enamoured by it? No, I didn't really. I've puzzled over that one a bit and I, I don't have an easy answer to it. it, it it's clear to me that... For example, as a child, but one of the stories I tell to children, for example, is the story about myself as a child living in Gaythorne, northern suburb of Brisbane, and my mother saying to me, 
would you like to go and visit Auntie Jean? I'd say, oh, yes, please, Mum. And she'd take me down the back steps and up the backyard underneath the poinciana tree and past the chooks and lift me over the back fence. So you need to imagine me about hmm, three years old, three and a half, perhaps, maybe four. And she'd say to me, now run up Auntie Jean's backyard, up the back steps, and don't forget to knock on the door. I'd say, okay, Mum, bye. And the really nice thing about it, if you're telling this story to kids, is that you... You can get the kids to say that too. You can say, ah, oh, oh, can everybody say, say, okay, mum, bye. And of course they join in and they love doing that. And you put a bit of sequence in the story. So I ran up Auntie Jean's backyard, you know, past the chooks. And if you're working with kids, it's really great. You can say, now what sound the chooks make? And they go, bah, 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 bah. And, and they really like it. And if you model it, of course, they follow you and have some fun. And then I say, underneath the clothesline and past the dunny, and they go, Dunny? I said, oh, oh, don't you know what a Dunny is? Oh, that's what we used to call the toilet that was in the backyard. I said, toilet in the backyard? No. I said, yeah, when I was a young boy, our toilets were in the backyard. And we called it the Dunny. And so it, it, it gives you that chance to pass over information and have a good time at the same time. From my own childhood, one of the people who I'm sure she had an influence was my Auntie Jean. And we'd sit on the front veranda, listen to Kindergarten of the Air, which wasn't Sesame Street on TV, it was Kindergarten of the Air on the ABC on the radio. Turn on the wireless and we'd sit on in the sun on the front veranda and listen to Kindergarten of the Air. And that, I'm sure that had an influence as well. But I really started performing when I worked for the Queensland Conservation Council. And as the state coordinator there, I had to do some media work. And as soon as you have to do a TV interview, you're effectively performing. You're using words carefully to get across a message, to get across a story. And I remember my first TV interview, <laughs> standing on a bridge out at Oxley Creek. And here was the TV camera, the first one I'd seen in those days. They really were big. You know? And when I looked at the interview that night on Channel 7, I think it was, I could see my knees <laughs> were shaking <laughs> and I looked pale. Uh, but I did it, you know, and... I think that was the start of my actual performing as such. So did you ever actually think it through, the process of actually doing it? How oh, well, now, yes, but beforehand. At, at the time? At the time. Yeah, did you think it through the actual methodology of storytelling? Or no, just, well... Or just do it? Um, in those days of being, you know, doing media work, no. Just did it? Just you, did it. You were natural? Yeah. Uh... Look, I, I think we're all naturals. What I did was overcome my fear uh, because it was a job. I had to overcome that fear. What happens is that most of us start off, like if you go to a kindy or a childcare centre, but particularly, say, a kindy, and you just stand for a while and watch kids in the playground, what they're actually doing is that they're living a story. They're telling each other stories. They're acting in a story. 
and they're having fun with it. And it's not hard. And they don't find it hard. They find it really, really a natural thing to do. And to see them do that, you think, oh, why would I ever think this was hard? And of course, what happens is that as we go through primary school, high school, into maybe if we go into university, that gets beaten out of us. We start to compete, we're criticised, we're not encouraged. And so we develop fears, embarrassments and whatnot, and they get in the way of that natural ability for human beings to communicate through story. In a lot of ways, it's good for me because I get to run workshops and, and connect people with that ability again. Just telling them what they've forgotten. Well, yes, but really working with them so that they actually start doing it in the workshop. And they do it in the workshop so that they can see that it's easy and they can see that it's fun. So they have to enjoy the workshop. They have to Mm. go, oh, yeah, that was fun. Oh, I can do that. Yes, it works. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any formal training? Well, I did a bit. See, after I worked for the Conservation Council, and this was during the the Joe area. So the 70s? uh, Yeah. And the Premier of Queensland at the time was Sir Joe Bajalki-Peterson. The Minister for Everything was uh, Russ Hins. He was the Minister of Main Roads, Police, Racing and Local Government, which was pretty cool in a lot of ways. But there's been lots of accusations about that state government being corrupt. And I have no doubt it was. And so it was a pretty heavy time. And after working for the Conservation Council for a couple of years, I basically had to get out of it. And I dropped out. I went and lived down the Tweed Valley. I lived on a a commune down there. So you became a hippie? (laughs) I became a hippie, yeah. It was good for a while. You wouldn't wouldn't exactly be the hippie generation, though, would you? You were a little bit young for that. I probably was. We, We gave it a bill. But basically, I got tired of it. One of the things I realised was that there's an awful lot of people on these communes and co-ops who were escaping. Mm. And so it really wasn't um, stimulating or creative enough for me. So I got a job in theatre and education. I talked myself into a job as an actor with a touring company and did a year's touring as, uh, as an actor doing theatre and Do you have some drama training? Well, at that stage I didn't. But I thought, wow, this is great. You know, I want to do more of this. I went and did more auditions and couldn't get any work. Just, you know, just didn't work. So I went and did a two-year drama course in Sydney at the Drama Action Centre. And it was lovely. It was, well, I shouldn't say lovely. It was really challenging. The setting was lovely. It was the the, um, Roselle Hospital, which was the, the mental hospital and they had a hall within that. So it was this garden setting. Mm, I, know, I know the know the grounds, the yes. estate. It's a wonderful property. Wonderful, wonderful. And it was just great being in this drama school, in this great setting, and being challenged every day, being challenged to be creative, to come up with all sorts of things in both physical theatre and one of the subjects was storytelling as well. Right. right. So came out of that two years with a lot more skill and a lot more confidence in my ability a lot more creativity as well so it's for some reason rather my partner doesn't like my saying this but i'll say it. my partner all at the time well she still is she did the same drama course she'd been a teacher's librarian 
And she said, why don't we try storytelling? So we did some advertising, got some work in places like kindergarten, union kindergartens, and um, basically started to earn a living as a storyteller. Right. And I've been doing it ever since. You're very animated. We're sitting here in my apartment, and even though you're sitting down, your shoulders are shrugging, your arms are waving in the air, your face is animated. You're you're a larger-than-life physically active person it's really interesting to watch you thank you it's quite entertaining i think you could keep your mouth quiet and tell a story in mime very easily so can we talk about the actual skill of storytelling now i noticed when you were telling that little story about being a little kid that your voice changed and if you go back and listen to it i'm sure you'll notice it i do yeah when you mimicked your mum you had a different voice to your storytelling voice. Hmm. And when you mimicked yourself, you took on a little kid's voice. These are techniques? Oh, sure. Yeah. I call it bringing a story alive. So what are some of the ways in which you bring a story alive? That's really what you want to do. What does an audience want or what does a listener want when they're listening to one of your stories? They don't want the story to be dead or boring, they want that story to be alive, they want to be entertained by it. So how do you entertain someone with a story? And one of them is voices. And, you know... And now this isn't about being accurate with actually imitating your grandfather's voice, is it? It's not about precision. No, no, absolutely not. Although you might be able to do your grandfather's voice quite accurately, and if you can, why not? Because it adds some um, integrity, I suppose... You believe in it more if you're accurate and therefore other people will believe in you more. So if you can do it easily, great. But you don't have to. If you've got a grandfather in there, an old male voice is fine. And and I always say, you know, I lived through the best part, the best times. When we had a party at the farm, Everyone had come around, they rolled back the carpets and they they put down some sawdust soaked with kerosene and the kids would get to be pulled around on on a sugar bag, around on on the floor to polish it. And so you can, you know, it's it's nice. Mm. You can have fun. Mm. And I think that's a big thing to work out. If you're going to bring your story alive, how do you have fun telling it? And voices is just one of them. Mm. What else? What other techniques would you recommend to people? The other probably most important thing is feeling, is emotion. One of the ways we can tell if, if, if someone is alive is if they're presenting us with feeling. Movement is one. We look at someone, you know, lying on the ground. Are they breathing? Oh, they're alive. Um... We, we hear someone express emotion and we realise, oh, they're not drugged out. They can communicate. So feeling is so important. If it's a happy part of a story, then that needs to come through in your voice. And, it, and something you just did then. You smiled. And, and when you smile, it comes through in your voice, doesn't it? That's right. And so that's one of the things I encourage people to do is to do some physical part of it as well. Whether someone can actually see the physical thing you're doing or not, it doesn't really matter. If you're angry and I'm coaching someone, I'll encourage them to clench their fist. 
because just that act of clenching the fist helps add the emphasis of anger. And as you said that you were punching your fist and your face furrowed and your words, as listeners can tell, became much more succinct. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And that, that helps use some of our muscle memories. So we've all had times when we've been angry and when we're angry, sure, we do it slightly differently, but we've got muscle memory of anger and part of that muscle, part of the muscles we use are our voice muscles. So by, oh. so, so by association, by physically doing it with the other parts of our body, that actually triggers our vocal muscle memories to be slightly different. That's why we can hear a smile. Okay. So, yeah, it's a, and, and, and it's worthwhile doing. You know, it might feel a bit embarrassing first time you do it, particularly if you do it in front of an audience, but hey makes a huge difference sure what do you think about well there are two different ways to approach stories one is the lecture and the other is the high drama one is just raw clinical technical data yeah and the other is all about flamboyancy and all about the excesses and um and there is a story woven in there somewhere sure you know they can both get across information but they're completely different ways of doing it. How do people negotiate that? Because a lot of people, you know, particularly in this Western society we live in, tend to be a bit more technical. You know, they write things out, they rewrite them, they get them technically precise. They want to speak well, they want to be enunciating clearly. They want to get all the technical things, but they're missing the drama often. I, I, that's where I think most of the problems are in, in, with storytelling is people want to be more technical than allow the emotions to come through. Yes. And I think it's largely fear. So I'll give you an example, a story example. I, I get some work in corporate storytelling. So every now and then I'm employed to work with corporate people, salespeople, managers, etc., and the reason why is corporate culture tends to discriminate against drama and flamboyance and feeling and emotion and tends to make it seem to people that it's not safe to be personal. So, um, what, and, oh, and, and the other, you know, if any piece of software could be called evil... <laughs> That one called PowerPoint um, is is an evil piece of software in terms of stories because what it what it encourages people to do is to dot point things and not tell stories. Mm. The good thing for me is I get work to help people overcome that. So a few years back, I was employed to work with some bank managers. And the state manager had said to me, My, I need you to come and help these people communicate better. Of course, they've forgotten how to tell stories. Ten points to him for even recognising it. Well, ten points for her, yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And, yeah, <laughs> in this case. And it was great. So, sure enough, in I go. I do some of my storytelling things. We play some of our storytelling games. We do some exercises. But I had set it up with the, the director beforehand. I said, in the middle of this workshop, I want you to do a little presentation. Have you got something you can... And it, 
Turned out she did. There was one of the managers she wanted to present an award to anyway. So she did that. And then I said to everyone, okay, give this person who's just received the award feedback. And they immediately started, but they started dot pointing. And I watched them. And they could tell that it wasn't working. The energy in the group was dropping. They were getting frustrated. And when it reached a certain level of frustration, <laughs> I said, okay, stop, stop, stop. Now I want you to give her feedback by telling her a story about a time when she did well, or she's just got this award for. And they go, oh, we can't do it. I said, yes, you can. We've been practicing this. That's what we've been doing this workshop. You can tell a story. And what was really interesting was that when they started telling this person a story about the time when she did it well, it started to work. The energy in the group started to lift. They had smiles on their faces. The award recipient who was getting the feedback had tears rolling down her cheeks because she was now getting real feedback in the form of stories. And that meant there was feeling in there. And there was real events. They were remembering something that had happened. And, and therefore, it was much more valuable. And, and it worked. And you could, you could see, they know. Oh, I understand. To me, that's the power of the story. And it's not so much of whether we do it really dramatically. It's that stories themselves are the way that human beings communicate in a human way, not in a mathematical or not in an economic or profit-driven way. It's a human way of communicating. I couldn't help but think about when I did the Dale Carnegie course many years ago, one of the things they said was no motherhood statements. And the dot point is very much similar to motherhood statements in the sense of, well, I love you for these five reasons. <laughs> but when you make it a real compliment in the sense of a story, because I think it's wonderful that you've done this for these particular reasons. I remember the time that we were involved in this situation. You supported me in this way. All of a sudden there's substance. They're not dot points, are they? Right. And they're no longer the obligatory I like you because of. It is, it's got real solid foundation below it. Yep. And that seems to be some of what you're saying in there. Yep. I'm, thinking back to that lesson I learned many years ago. And, and the thing you haven't, the question you haven't asked yet is, what is a story? Daryl, <laughs> go ahead. Daryl, <laughs> what is, is a story? story? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, thank you for that question. It's <laughs> a pleasure. A story is something which we, we've used for, for eons to communicate. Stories have characters, have people, have, you know, characters, they have settings, they have problems, and they have resolutions. So that story structure, or if you want a slightly more academic term, that's narrative structure. And if you want to create a story, that's what you have to do. Start with a character or start with a setting, you know, depending which way. If you're starting with a character, you need to put that character in the setting. So you might remember when I started telling you about being a young boy and the influence of my auntie Jean, 
I told you the setting, you know, Gaythorne, the northern suburb of Brisbane, backyard, fence, describe the setting of Auntie Jean's yard. So what, by, by doing that, you can recognise it as a story. You've already got one character, you've got the setting, you want a problem somewhere along the line. And of course, in that story, I, the, the problem is not so much a problem, but it's, in this case, it's a challenge. And it was, my mum said, oh, Daryl, do you like surprises? I said, oh, yes, please, mum, what's the surprise? And she said, no, 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 no. If I tell you, it will spoil the surprise. But your Auntie Jean has got something for you. So that immediately becomes, in this case, not so much a problem as a challenge. It's a form of the problem. And, of course, as the story listener, we want to find out what the resolution is, what the result, really, what it is. And, of course, in this story, it ends up being a kitten. But it's not going to be quite enough as a story, you know, as a child getting a kitten. It's a feel-good one. It's not bad, you know. So to make that story have some real stuff, I've got to make it a real problem. So in the story, and this has some, some reality, the kitten gets lost. The problem then becomes, how do we find the kitten? And, and of course... If it's going to be a resolution, the end of narrative structure, you know, character setting, problem resolution, the kitten either has to be found <laughs> or the kitten has to die. And you have to learn the lesson of loss. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But in this case, the kitten is found. Right. Because I tell that story to young children, um, three and a half, three, well, two and a half, right up to five, six, seven, and they would much prefer it that the kitten is found. And it's really interesting. Um, it, it, I just love it because after going through the problem and, and how the kitten gets lost and all that and my character as a child being really upset about the kitten being lost and so it's got enough feeling in it and then we're moving towards the resolution. I'm looking at the audience and I just know that they're working out how the story is going to end and it ends something like, Mum, there's somebody knocking at the front door. And my mum went and opened a door. And you know who was standing there? And all the kids sing out, Socks the kitten! Because <laughs> <laughs> it can't be Socks. Because Socks can't knock on the door. I say, no, no, no. It was Mrs Brown from across the road. And you know what she had in her hands? She says, oh, was it Socks the kitten? I say, yeah. And she said to me, is this your kitten? I said, Yes. And she said, well, you look after him, won't you? I said, yes, thanks, Mrs. Brown. And I took him into the kitchen and put him down on the floor and watched him lap up the milk with his little pink tongue. And then he jumped into his basket and ran, ran, and ran around the basket. And all the kids sing out, chasing his tail. And I said, yeah, that's right, because that's something we've done early in the story. So it's sort of like the story is now finished because we've got the resolution of the problem. And even young kids know that. They know that. By the time they get to be about three and a quarter, something like that, they know story structure. Some of them decide that the story's finished before you've decided it's finished, and they say, oh, what's the next story? (laughs) But, yeah. So it's ingrained in our DNA virtually. It's it's really moot point. Some people argue that, yes, it's ingrained in our DNA Mm -hmm. or it's hardwired into our brain. 
and or some people hardwired into our culture, maybe at some level too. Yes, and I think my current belief is that um, right from very young babies, scan sounds and scan language of people around them and their brain is working out a database of language sounds. So once you get to, you're born with a universal range of sounds you can pronounce. Once we get to a certain age, our mind maps have changed and there are, for example, Vietnamese sounds which English speakers can't use and vice versa. And it's because our mind maps have eliminated some of our those sounds and so I think it's the same with stories I think as young children we scan we listen and we hear stories and it becomes a part of our our communication database if you like and and, and then we filter the world through that system which is why things like analogies myths and legends have so much sense to us because absolutely. this is how we see the world we yes. interpret and even in Understanding yourself, you'll look at some parts of your personality and you might go, why did I do this? And you'll create a story about it. It's a way of interpreting the world. Yes. Yes. And for storytellers, you go, ah, oh, why am I telling that sort of story? And for a while I was telling stories that, that had small characters and giant characters. And I was telling these stories to kids to be an entertainer. But I had this whole series of stories and I was thinking, why on earth am I telling this sort of story. What does it say about you? What does it say about me? And um, listeners can't see me because this is audio, but I'm not a big person. I'm probably only about five foot five, whatever that is. And so I've lived a life growing up as a child where there was a lot more bigger kids, bigger adults, bigger whatever. So size had a, well, not quite a survival thing, but something like that. And so it made sense that one of the issues in my life has been physical height, if you like. So those so, stories are useful for me as an adult. Yeah, so maybe you were doing some sort of mental processing. Who knows? I have no doubt, mm-hmm. yeah. The other day you mentioned to me about speaking in first person. It's, once again, well, we're back to bringing stories alive, really. How do you bring a story alive? So it's, you're listening to someone tell a story. And often the point where that story goes bing and comes alive will be the first time one of the characters speak in direct speech. And so as a storyteller, it's the first time you say, and and my uncle or my auntie said, and you say the actual words. So this is where you drop back into mimicry. Yes, if you like mimicry. Um, I prefer to think is the character actually speaks. And the copper said, stand right there. We pass across an awful lot of information in that, that direct speech. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and the story often comes alive. You've been doing this a good long while, I'd imagine. A while. Well, say the 70s, so we're looking at three or so decades, three or four decades. Yep. What have you got out of it personally? Look, all the storytellers I know are, are alive, and I think that's part of it, is that I think we all need to be creative, and, and if we're not, then our life becomes drudgy. 
<laughs> and the really nice thing about being a storyteller, particularly one who tells stories to children, uh, is that you, you can't be sludgy. You've got to be alive. And not only that, you can't be thinking about problems. You know, you can't be thinking about getting your tax done or something like that. You've got to put your full attention on the story you're telling. And so it's attention away from distress. The time when one you're actually telling a story is attention away from distress time. And that's something to be um, valued. It's dropping back into the moment yet again, isn't it? It is. Yeah. There you are telling the story, living in that precise moment in front of the kids. Yeah. You can't worry about anything else. Or in front of adults. It doesn't yeah, really doesn't matter. matter. No, that's right. No. That's right. And very much that, you know, people say that Zen space of creativity. I know because I've worked with my hands all my life and I've made many things that you often drop into this place. Once you've got the initial skills there, you can drop into this place where it's easy and you can just do this task and you're in this beautiful space of creativity. I sometimes think that we can all do that when telling our own personal stories because we know our stories. Deep inside us, they exist. So what we're going to do is say them and relive them. Yeah, and probably that emphasis on reliving, I think. Um, one of the things that happens, though, is that we've all got an editor, and so... As we tell a story, we're editing a story. And that's effectively choosing the, the, the content that is safe for us to tell in that particular moment with that particular audience. Is that valid? Should people be telling only the truth, uh, the only the way it is? Should they be technically correct? Or is it all right to massage the uh, story a little bit? We would... It, it's essential that we massage the story effectively. The challenge is to how do you maintain integrity? To survive, we have to massage the story. Not only that, there's been research to indicate that it's part of our growing intelligence and is to be able to massage our story. You know, the term massage is, has a slightly derogatory sort of association with it. It's more a case of choosing the appropriate story for the appropriate situation. And that's been happening for millennia. The way you tell a story within the marketplace is different to the way you tell a story in the palace in front of the king, for example. And, and if you don't make that discrimination, you may lose your, your head. Yeah. So, and the stories we tell our children is different to the stories we tell our parents, and they can be the same story. They can be the same story. And, but what's important is how you maintain integrity. How do you maintain integrity? It's, it's a challenge at times. The, the, the thing is truth. So the story itself has to have some integrity. So, for example... Back to a story myself as a childhood and my auntie Jean. With that story is a true story, but I play around with that story. So, yes, I did get a kitten. Within the story, I call that kitten socks. Now, I have absolutely no idea what the kitten I had as a small child was called. 
But I think it's fine for me to call the story kitten Socks because then I can do this little joke about why is it called Socks? Oh, yes, it's called Socks because it's got white feet. And for the kids, that becomes a little joke and it goes flip and it's great and they enjoy it. But I don't think it changes the integrity of the story. If I was to do something like pretend that as a kid we lived a, I don't know, wealthy, <laughs> as a wealthy family, um, then for me that would be changing, that would be would not have integrity. Um, part of what I put in that story, for example, is my dad was a baker and he says to me, oh, Daryl, uh, would you like to walk up Bellevue Avenue with me as far as the railway line fence? Because my dad, he worked at night making the doughs and the bread. I said, oh, yes, please, Dad. And, and I said, can I take socks too? And he says, yeah, uh, but how, hold on to him tight. And we walked up Bellevue Avenue, past the iceworks, past the fibro factory, until we got to the railway line fence. So what I put in that story is, is that reality? There was an iceworks across the road. There was a fibro asbestos factory in our street. But what I don't put in is that one of the neighbours died from mesothelioma. If I was telling that story to adults, I might do so. But if I'm telling that story to kids, no. Hmm. But I've maintained integrity in my mind by having the iceworks, by having the fibro factory. And it's really interesting that information goes into kids' ears and how they process it, I don't know. But what I notice is teachers, adults in that, that audience, going, oh, and that has an impact for them. So, yeah. I think something I live by, something I've written about a bit, is intention. Your intention is to do no harm. Your intention is to get across a story and your intention is for it to be, in essence, true. If you maintain all of those qualities, you can achieve truth. But it may not be precisely accurate. And that's okay. Oh, look, I think that's absolutely... You only have to look at sacred stories. I mean, you look at Bible stories, for example. The integrity of the story is maintained even if the language is changed. So, you know, the same story is told in the King James Version as it's told in various modern versions... But the language gets changed. Uh, also, if you're telling one of the Bible stories to a group of young children versus telling that Bible story to a group of retirees, you know, it's still essentially the same story, but, hey, you change the way you tell it. So I asked you before a little bit about you've been doing this a long time and you've been earning more than just a wage out of it. What else has it given you? You're quite heavily embedded into this community around here in West End. Is that part of what it's given you? Yeah, I think it has, because one of, one of the things about stories is that there's a whole lot of different ways of getting involved with stories and storytelling. So, yes, I'm a performance storyteller, but I'm also interested in oral history, for example. I'm interested in history. I do a fair bit of work doing digital stories. So one of the local projects we did was the West End Digital Story Project, working down at West End Community House. And with the benefit of a gambling community benefit fund grant, 
purchasing laptops and a digital video camera and um, sound recording gear and helping people tell their story as a digital story, publishing that as a DVD and getting that out into the community. And just that process of working with people so that they go, oh, my story is being valued. So one of the stories in that project, in that Western Digital Story project, we entered into the Western Film Festival. It got shortlisted. That was great. Didn't win, but it got shortlisted. So Congratulations. <laughs> but just that thing of being shortlisted made a huge difference to the person whose story it was. And so I benefit in that way because I get more embedded in my community. I get this sense of well-being from doing something which is positive and constructive. Doing something which, in my mind, helps maintain a civil society. And I know the concept of civil society is not seen terribly positive by some people, but in my mind, that it's, it's a really good model of what adds value to a community. Well, I noticed during the floods that we had recently back in January that the civil society came out of the woodwork. After many years of people scrapping and fighting for more property in a bigger share portfolio, I was stunned at how much community-minded, good, high-quality, valued resources appeared yep. and are still appearing. Yep. There are a lot of people doing a lot of good work for people who got put out by the floods. That's right. I thought that was an amazing yeah. thing to see. And it was, I was in at the climate change rally last weekend, ran across an old friend. Someone who works in the community said, how'd you go in the flood? His house got flooded. And what was really interesting was that uh, oh, his house was insured, but he had water up to the ceiling. below the ceiling height. He was almost embarrassed. No, embarrassed isn't the word. He almost Survive, felt that he should not be telling his story. And I say, no. And my partner, Karen, was saying, no, no. Tell us your story. We want to hear. It's important that you tell your flood story. Because by sharing that story and by having people listen to you, so not only are you telling the story, you've got some story listeners, that is a healing process. That helps you get over the distress of, even for someone whose house was insured, it's still a traumatic event. And just being able to share those stories is is a really good thing to do. Leading on from that, if somebody was telling their life story, sitting down for many hours, expressing the stories of their existence, are there benefits beyond just sharing these stories for them? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, there's so many ones. Just that thing of sitting down and telling a story. I, I actually think there's a... Uh, one of the things that happens is that we actually get a, a, a brain chemical release in that process of both telling the story and listening to the story. So you get that benefit itself. But you actually get to review your story as you tell it. Of course, there's that editing process. You don't sit down and do absolutely everything that's, or try and do absolutely everything that ha has happened in your life. It would probably be boring because we do some pretty boring things in our life. By focusing on the things that are worth telling, we're actually evaluating our life as well. I think that's got a huge benefit. 
it's just that sort of thing of saying, oh, yeah, I have done some interesting things in my life. And everybody has, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. You've done a lot of these sorts of oral history interviews. Sure. What benefits for them have you seen? It's a self-esteem thing. Someone is listening to me and they value me and they value my story enough to want to record it. And that's part of the job of a oral history recorder is that you've got to be interested in the story and you've got to show that interest and you've got to be encouraging and supportive. So just have that someone sitting there who's being encouraging and supportive of you rather than being critical or, or you know, get on with a grandpa or something. <laughs> that, that's a huge benefit. That's yeah. saying, oh, my life is being valued. It's a big self-esteem boost apart from anything else. It has other, if you are unfortunate enough to be an Alzheimer's sufferer, for example, having your life story recorded and being able to listen to that recording has been shown to be of huge benefit to Alzheimer's sufferers. It's a huge benefit if you're living in a nursing home and you're living where people actually don't know you to listen to your own life story. And particularly if someone else can sit with you and listen to it as well and say, oh, wow, you know, that was great. Oh, what an interesting life you've had. And so you get that validation, I suppose. Mm. And for you, as the person who's doing the recording of somebody else, what have you got out of it? Oh, look, you learn so much. The really interesting project I'm doing at the moment is the Inala Elders Digital Story Resource Project. And the aim of that is to produce a series of digital stories about the Inala Indigenous Elders, and they're going to be a community resource. But in the process of doing that, in the process of researching that, I've learned so much about, for example, what was it like to live under the Act as an Indigenous person in Queensland? And as you so can you explain the act? Oh, sorry. Up to the, what was it? 1967. 67, thank you very much. All Indigenous persons in Queensland were controlled under the act. I've got the actual name of the act. It controlled so many things. They were non-citizens. Yes, until the referendum. That's right. It, it controlled the way they, where they could live, where they could move, and to move off a mission or off a reserve or something like that, they had to get permission it just meant a huge difference. And whether a person, Indigenous person, was under the Act or not made a big difference to the quality of life. So actually hearing Indigenous people, Indigenous elders, tell those stories means that I get this growing awareness, this growing knowledge and understanding of what's happened. And the really, I mean, the thing I've grown to appreciate, I listen to these stories and I go... Why aren't these elders angry, you know? Why aren't they standing there with, you know, ready to punch me out, for example? But, of course, they're not, you know. They're, they're gentle, loving, understanding people who are wanting to pass this information on so that other people can understand. And that's, I don't know, I feel nourished by that, really, and it's been this ongoing process. So one of the really nice things for me is that I have this ongoing relationship with one of the Inala elders, Auntie Vine McDermott, 
And over the years, she's a storyteller as well. She's been a performance storyteller as well. And over the years, we've done various things together. And it's great. She can ring me up now. And, and her current project that she wants to do is she wants to create a, a documentary of her life. And the, the really nice thing is she wants me to do it. And I go, wow, that's wonderful. <laughs> How can I do this? And it, it's been this you know, lovely relationship that we've had. Yeah, so that's another one of the benefits. So seeing as how you're on your story and you're sharing so much of yourself, Daryl, why don't you give yourself a bit of a plug if anybody wants to get hold of you? <laughs> sure. Yes, I have a website. It's called storytell.com. So www.storytell.com.au. And you can go to that website find out about some of the services I offer, some of the workshops, some of the performances, some of the possible projects. Send me an email, mail at storytell.com.au or give me a ring. The phone number's on the website and um, be really happy to do a project with you, tell some stories, um, have some fun. You've given us a good overview of the sort of things you do. What would you recommend that everybody considers as far as making good societies, helping themselves, helping other people in regards to storytelling. A bit of philosophy (laughs) from Daryl Bennett now. I suppose, yeah, it's probably tell more stories and listen to more stories. But when you do it, put that extra little bit of care and energy into it. Work on bringing your story alive. Because when you do, you're actually giving a gift to someone. As you tell a story, you give a gift to the story listener. The gift is the story, but the gift can also be how you tell the story. So if you bring your story alive and put a bit more, a bit more um, energy, a bit more style, a bit fearless about how you tell that story, the gift becomes more. So it's the gift of stories. Carol Ballingham, thank you so very much for coming on your story. My pleasure. in the naked city. This has been one of them.